The following is a podcast from Live It, a ministry of St. Marcus. For more information or for message notes, go to www.liveitmke.org. This is the fourth week in our Design of Love series, and each week up until now, we have looked at God's design specifically for marriage and the trickle-down effects that that has on all our other relationships. Many of you have been waiting for this week because you think it sounds maybe perhaps a little bit more relevant to you. This week we're looking at the godliness of singleness. And our specific text that we're looking at tonight is probably uh, maybe the best text in Scripture, at least certainly the best chapter in Scripture for directly addressing the godliness of Christian singles. Here the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, Chapter 7, verses 29 through 35. He says, What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are therefore divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. This is God's word. Um, Our progression of thought for the past three weeks has looked like this. Again, we've primarily each week been talking about the marriage relationship and the impact that has on all of us in life. And if you remember, this is sort of the little equation that we've been using week after week. We said that God designed marriage, the relationship between a husband and wife, to perfectly reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. Everything about that relationship between husband and wife is supposed to perfectly mirror the relationship between Christ and the church. That was what we called the secret of marriage. And the reason it's a secret is the unbelieving world doesn't know anything about that. The unbelieving world can go on the basis of other people's anecdotes or recommendations or statistics, but they do not have the secret that marriages were designed by God to reflect the relationship of Christ and the church. That's the secret of marriage. The second week, we said the essence of marriage was the fact that whatever it is that makes that A relationship work, if B is supposed to reflect A, then whatever it is that makes the A relationship work must also be the thing, the special ingredient, the secret sauce that makes the B relationship work. And we said the only thing that actually makes that A relationship work, that makes the relationship between God and his church possible, is something the Bible calls grace, undeserved love. 
Because Jesus shows undeserved love to us, his church, we are able to be reconciled together eternally. Now, if that's the case, if that's the secret ingredient that makes the relationship between Christ and the church work, well, that must be the secret ingredient that makes the relationship between a husband and wife work. If a husband and wife are supposed to show grace to one another, that means that a husband and wife enter into a covenant relationship. Therefore, they are committed to loving one another without always liking one another. They are committed to showing expressions of love to one another, even at the times when they're not feeling affections of love for one another. We said, when husband and wife do this, what happens? Well, when Jesus showed grace to the church, you know what it brought about for both parties? It brought about eternal glory, joy, intimacy, and satisfaction. Now, if that's the case, and B is supposed to reflect A, that means when a husband and wife show grace to one another, what inevitably should come about as a result of that is glory, joy, intimacy, and satisfaction. That still makes sense? I'm starting to memorize that from week to week. Um, so according to the Bible, marriage is a wonderful thing. Marriage was designed by God, and when it's functioning the way it's supposed to, it is a tremendous blessing to God's people. Here's the catch. Sometimes the world, and sometimes for that matter, even Christian churches, have a tendency to look at marriage as though it was an ultimate thing. There's a tendency amongst Christians sometimes to say, ah, yeah, marriage. You know, isn't that just the best? And some of the prophets that are most emphatically proclaiming that message are your own parents. So that virtually every time you talk on the phone to them, they're looking for some kind of relationship status update. Have you met somebody? How's it going? Is he going to pop the question soon? Is it? And so on and so forth. And a lot of you have experienced a tremendous amount of pressure from well-intentioned people about getting married. Some of you have even felt, I know this because some of you have told me, uh, a certain amount of stigma for being a single adult and somebody almost treats you as though that's some sort of defective state. So here's the thing. As a Christian church, in the same way that we have to talk about marriage, the Bible talks just as much about being godly singles. Let me give you four reasons why we have to talk about singleness tonight. Number one, many of you are single. Okay? Um, that's particularly true within the evening service community here. By my calculations, it's somewhere probably around 70-ish percent. St. Marcus as a whole, it's over 50 percent. Uh, by the way, I just heard a statistic earlier today that said in 1950 that the number of adults that were single was around 20 percent. We just hit the point in our country's history where, history where we now have more adult singles than we do adults who are married. So it's absolutely relevant. And in fact, the further, the deeper that you get into the city, it's more and more relevant. Uh, it's almost, if you move out and spread out into the suburb, it's, suburbs, it's actually the opposite. The more you get out into suburbia, the more you run into married couples. But the deeper you move into the heart of the city, so for instance, a, a congregation placed like what St. Marcus is, absolutely, we na have now and we always will have a lot of singles. So it's relevant for us. Number two, Many of you will be single in your life. Most of us, for some fairly decent long stretch in our adult lives, will live as singles. Either you're single before you get married, you're single throughout your entire adult life, 
you're single after perhaps a divorce, you're single after perhaps your spouse passes away. Uh, my grandma, for instance, my grandpa passed away after a very brief bout with cancer. He passed away in his early 60s. My grandma lived for another 30 plus years. And in some respects, living as a single at that point was perhaps even harder for her than the fact that she had not been single throughout her entire life. It was even more of a challenge. This is a very real situation that the vast majority of us are going to face in some way, shape, or form in our lives to live as singles. So it's important to figure out how to live as godly singles. Number three, some of you right now are spiritually single. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7 too. He talks about how non-believing husbands and wives are often sanctified by their believing spouses. And what he means by that is the believing spouse has a godly influence on the non-believing spouse. In other words, when they, the, the believing spouse treats the non-believing spouse with a certain level of Christ-like grace and compassion and mercy and generosity and patience, uh, it tends to have a heart-melting effect on the non-believing spouse. Nonetheless, the fact of the matter remains when you have a non-believing spouse with a believing spouse, that's not the way God designed it to be. And therefore, the believing spouse does not get the encouragement and support and accountability that God originally intended in the marriage relationship. That would be spiritually single. And finally, the Apostle Paul talks in this section about living as though you were single, even if you're married. Now, don't misinterpret what he's saying here. That could sound very weird very quickly. The, the Apostle Paul is not encouraging some kind of weird polyamorous sister wives kind of situation here, okay? What he's saying is, even if you are married, you live with a certain amount of undivided, unwavered devotion to the Lord. So even if you are married, in a sense, Paul says, spiritually, you might live as though you were single. What of all, all this amounts to is simply this. Marriage is a godly thing. But singleness is a godly thing. It's a prevalent thing. It affects many of our lives. And we absolutely, as the church, should be talking about it. This is maybe the first time in my entire life that I recall a specific worship service being focused to the concept of Christian singleness, which is a little unusual when I think about it because there are so many adult singles. But it's important that we talk about it. So let's look at our text. The Apostle Paul opens the verses that we just looked at by saying, a lot of good things that you have, I want you to live as if you didn't have them. So he says things like, if you are married, live as, as though you were not. If you are happy, live as though you were not. If you have a bunch of stuff in this lifetime that you like, live as though you didn't. If you are engrossed with or obsessed with the world, live as if you were not. Why does he say that? Why does he say you have all these good things, but I want to live as though you didn't? Why? He tells us. He says, simply because the time is short. The world in its present form is passing away. Now, sometimes Christians and even skeptics will misinterpret what he's saying here. A lot of Christians have looked at that and said, you see, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, see, Paul thinks that the world is going to pass away sometime in the next couple of days or the next maybe couple of years or certainly within his lifetime. That's not what he says. He doesn't say the world in its present form will soon pass away. No, it's a present progressive in the Greek language. He says the world in its present form is 
passing away. We currently are in the process of this world and its time running out. He says the problem is a lot of Christians, just like the world around them, tend to live as though right here and right now is all we have. A lot of Christians approach their relationships and their careers and their wealth and their houses and their cars and their friendships and everything else as though right here and right now is all we actually have. That's what the non-believing world does. Christians who understand that the true life is coming beyond this life would naturally have a very different perspective on this life and live differently. I can prove this to you. Let me just show you real quick. Um, Let's say tonight God sends an angel to you, all right? God sends an angel right into your bedroom, wakes you up, and makes you a proposition. And the angel says to you, all right, tomorrow morning you're going to wake up. And for the first 10 seconds of tomorrow, your day is going to be kind of eh. You know, not, not great, but not terrible. You'll wake up, the dog is sitting on your face. You get a sneezing fit, you stub your toe on the way to the bathroom. It's not awful, but it's not, you know, not how you'd prefer to wake up. Ten seconds, though. Ten seconds is all it is. But if you allow that to happen, the rest of that 24-hour day is going to be the most spectacular, magnificent, perfect, and beautiful day of your entire life. Do you take it? Of course you take it. Any reasonable person takes that off, especially tomorrow's a Monday, by the way, in case you don't remember. Everybody could use a better Monday. Of course you take that proposal. You'd have to be a fool not to because the statistics are all in your favor. Well, let me show you something real quick. Put this into eternal perspective. You know what the average human life is? Approximately somewhere in the neighborhood of, let's say, about 80 years. You know how long eternity is? Well... You know, by definition, it's, it's like infinite. But for argument's sake, for scientific sake tonight, let's say it's approximately a million years. Obviously, it's longer than that, but for our purposes, it's a million years. You know what the ratio of 80 years, a lifetime, to eternity, a million years is? Let's put it in perspective of a 24-hour day. You know what it amounts to be? 6.9 seconds. The Apostle Paul says... Some of us believers are living obsessed with those 6.9 seconds. It's nonsense. This world is short. The time is passing away. Don't live for the 6.9 seconds. Live with an eternal perspective in mind. And yet some Christians chase the things of this world just like the rest of the world that doesn't understand there's an eternity coming beyond this one. How does this apply to you as a single? Well, let's say you're experiencing a certain amount of, of, of loneliness and isolation and desperation. You don't have to panic. This isn't going to last forever. This is a brief sliver in the history of time and God will give you the strength to get through these 6.9 seconds because you're going to get to the most beautiful marriage, relationship, and family you could ever possibly imagine once you get to the life that really is life beyond this life. So the Apostle Paul goes on to say, now remember, the Apostle Paul himself is single. And he goes on to say, 
now an unmarried man, and I'm kind of cramming the verses together here, but he says the same thing for a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. An unmarried man or woman is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he or she can please the Lord. But a married man or woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he or she can please his wife or her husband. And his or her interests are therefore then divided. See, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is, look, when God first created mankind, when he created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he brought them together as man and wife, husband and wife, they were perfect. Not only did they have a perfect capacity to love, but they also, in their hearts, had pure hearts where all of the, the, the priorities and the loves of their heart were rightly ordered. And therefore, they could equally love God and love one another and love all the other creatures, and they could do it in perfect balance and harmony. But when Adam and Eve sinned, it went south real quick. And their perfect, pure hearts got turned inside out and upside down. And because of that, God said, this world is passing away. It has to pass away so that my children can eventually get back to where they were supposed to be, which is in paradise. And therefore, while marriage is a tremendous blessing that God gives to us, in a fallen world, what God says is sometimes marriage doesn't work the way he originally intended. It's possible for your marriage partner to actually get in the way of you serving the Lord. In fact, I don't think it would take too much imagination for any single one of us to think about somebody that we know whose spouse perhaps has gotten in the way of them serving their Lord perhaps as well as they could or should. When you give your heart to somebody, when you commit to somebody like that, it requires a great deal of devotion and it can very easily distract from devotion to God. So the last three weeks, what we did is we, we spent the, that time saying marriage is a wonderful, gorgeous blessing from God, but you know what it's not? It's not the ultimate thing of life. It is not the final pursuit of life. There is no Savior in the world except the Savior, and consequently, from its inception, Christianity always gave a tremendous amount of honor and empowerment to singles in a way that the rest of the world absolutely did not. You see, in the ancient world, it was nearly impossible for you to be considered having a good life, a successful, uh, achieving, worthwhile, valuable life if you were not married and if you did not have any offspring. Your entire value, your entire meaning for life was completely attached to and hinged on your marriage and your offspring. Um, by the way, in the ancient world, you didn't have singles. Single adults? Uh, by, it, it didn't really exist. Single adults in the modern concept of dating didn't really come into the Western world until about the 20th century, after Henry Ford invented the car. And then we, we can now start going out. We'll take you out to eat. We'll take you out to a movie. We'll that, it never, before you just went over to somebody's house and sat in their parlor room and their parents examined you to see if you were fit for their daughter. This modern dating concept is totally new. In the ancient world, there really wasn't so much a thing as singles. They were very rare. In fact, uh, historians will tell you that one of the largest group of ancient singles was in fact, this might blow your minds, prostitutes. Consequently, if you were a female 
in the ancient world. And you and your children were going to be provided for. It was almost mandatory. You had to get married. Think about how hard or unfair that might seem. But listen, here comes the Apostle Paul, and here comes Christianity. And you know what he says? He says, you know what? Living as a single adult is a totally legitimate way to live. And in fact, in some ways, it's actually a more beneficial way for believers to live. Uh, one, of, one of the historians I often read, his name is Rodney Stark, and he puts it like this. Look how different Christianity is from the world that surrounded it in the early church. He said, should they become widowed, the Christian women enjoyed substantial advantages. You see, pagan widows faced great social pressure to remarry. Caesar Augustus even had widows fined if they failed to marry within two years. In other words, he felt like widows were too much of a, a drag and a dead weight on society. He fined them if they didn't get married. In contrast, among Christians, widowhood was highly respected and remarriage was, if anything, mildly discouraged. The church stood ready to sustain poor widows, allowing them a choice as to whether or not to remarry. And single widows were therefore active in caregiving and good deeds in the neighborhood. Because the Christian church empowered widows and single women to continue to be widows and single women and not force them to get married, they were able to let their light shine by serving their community in, in beautiful ways. You understand what this means? The world has often told you that to be single is some sort of defective state. Do not listen to what the world has to say about that. Do not listen to what your own parents have to say about that. Now, by the way, if, you, if you're a kid and you just tuned in for just that moment when I say don't listen to what your parents have to say about that stuff, that's, don't take that out of context. Listen to what your parents have to say. If you're an adult and you feel unnecessary pressure and stigma and guilt and whatever, don't listen to what they have to say because that simply is not biblical. Marriage is a good thing, but singleness is a good thing too. Christianity radically empowered singles in a way that the world never figured out how to do. Jesus himself was single. The Apostle Paul was not only single, but he told other Christians that he preferred many of them live the same way that he did. Do you understand how liberating this is for so many single adults? Um, let, me, let me get just to a couple practical application points now. Um, I, there's a bunch of them, but I'm going to keep it to three here real quick. Number one, there is such a thing in Scripture as a gift of singleness. The Apostle Paul, earlier on in this chapter from 1 Corinthians 7, he says in verse 7, uh, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that gift. Now, the Apostle Paul says that on the heels of talking about how the, the, the believers in Corinth were really struggling with sexual sins premarital sex, extramarital sex, and a host of other sexual immorality kinds of things. And he says to them, because there's so much immorality, you guys really need to get married. He goes on to say, it is better to marry than, you maybe heard this before, than to burn with passion, which is kind of a, a double entendre that he's offering there. So how this applies to singles is if you can't reasonably envision yourself living a celibate life, a life of abstinence, a life without sexual activity, 
If you can't reasonably anticipate that, you should be looking for a marriage partner. Uh, in other words, being single but using it to foster a life of immorality or, or selfishness or uh, bitterness towards the opposite sex or any other kind of sinful motivation, that wouldn't be a good reason to be single. You can absolutely be single to the glory of God, but you can also be single simply to the glory of self. Whether you are married or whether you are single, we should always be doing it to the glory of God and therefore only pursue singleness if you believe you have a gift of singleness. Second application point, avoid deep emotional involvement with a non-believer. This is going to be my most controversial point here tonight. Um, this question comes up again and again. I get it all the time. I got it twice in uh, two Bible studies two weeks ago. I got it twice in two Bible studies this past week. What about a believer? Uh, should they be or could they be dating a non-believer or even marrying a non-believer? I will say in recent years there's been a certain amount of debate about this, but I don't think that there probably has to be. Because I think when you take what the scripture says about it as a whole, it becomes pretty clear. The Apostle Paul, again in this chapter in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, if you're looking in 1 Corinthians 7 right now, verse 39 he says, A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to marry anybody she wishes. But... He must belong to the Lord. Okay? So the assumption was that there were Corinthians who got married and they were non-believers. They converted to the Christian faith and then their, their spouse either divorced them or passed away or whatever other reason. But now, Paul says, you're free to remarry, but as a single, you should be marrying a believer. Paul says other things very similarly, for instance, in 2 Corinthians 6.14 where he says a believer should not be unequally yoked. Yoked, to, what he means there is using kind of an ancient metaphor for pulling weight. He says every believer, essentially, there's a spiritual weight that we pull through life. If you hook yourself too closely to somebody that is not also bearing that weight, it can actually pull you back in your walk with Jesus. If you open your heart up to somebody like that and they give you access to their heart, at the very least, it can be very confusing. At worst, it can be very spiritually dangerous. Uh, I remember counseling a woman a couple years ago who, if you had asked this woman a number of years ago, do you believe in biblical doctrines, things like simply heaven and hell, basic biblical doctrine, she would have not hesitated to say, yeah, absolutely, I believe in things like heaven and hell. She married a non-believing man. And a couple years ago, I started doing counseling with her. And she told me, you know what? I'm not entirely sure I buy that whole thing about hell anymore. This was not based on anything she read in scripture. It was not based on any logical argument that she had heard. You know why she stopped believing in hell? Because she loved her husband so much, she could not simply stand the thought of someone she loved so dearly not being in heaven with her. And because she loved him so much, you know what she did? She compromised her theology. At the very least, it can be spiritually confusing. At the worst, it can be very spiritually dangerous. This is the reason why the, the Lord in the Old Testament, he tells the Jewish people, the believers, not to marry non-Jews. Again, some people get this totally wrong. Some people accuse, skeptics of the Bible will accuse God of being racist. 
not the case at all. Moses married a non-Jew, a Cushite woman from Ethiopia. God was not against marrying outside your ethnic group. He was against marrying outside your faith. Which the Bible also tells us this is the exact reason why King Solomon, who took many foreign wives, fell away from faith. Not because they were foreign, but because he started worshiping their foreign gods. Now, one of the points of contention that I'll often hear on this, uh, I've heard this one a number of times, so I, I got to share it with you. Some people will say, well, pastor, I know a relationship where there was a believing spouse and they married a non-believer and it turned out really well. You know, either the, the relationship went great from a worldly perspective or maybe even he or she, the non-believing party, ended up converting to the Christian faith. At which point I would say, that's fantastic. I'm thankful the Lord brought that person to faith. That's not an argument to approach relationships that way though. That'd be like saying, I once knew a guy who got drunk and drove home and he made it home safe just fine. That doesn't mean it's advisable. The Apostle Paul says the time is short. As Christians, we want to make decisions that reflect that we understand this is just 6.9 seconds that we're trying to keep ourselves on the path that leads to eternal life, the life that really is life. So we make our decisions according to eternity, not just the here and now. Brings me to the final point of application. Allow yourself input from honest, loving Christians. Uh, I mentioned earlier that, that 20th century dating was kind of a, it's a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, in, in history, generally speaking, it was always the case that your family and your friends would get some kind of input on whoever it is that you married. Certainly in the Christian community. Because Christians were supposed to live in communion, communal lives together, and therefore even entering into something like marriage was a communal exercise. You invited people over to your homes. You showed one another transparency in that regard. Uh, in fact, Christian couples, I know it's, it's, it's easy just to say, yeah, I'm just going to invite like other Christian couples that we have something in common with. Don't just invite Christian couples over to your house uh, when you hang out. Invite Christian singles over to your house too. Why? Because it offers them the opportunity to see not only how tremendous of a blessing marriage can be, but also how difficult marriage at times can be. It gives them an honest perspective on things. Furthermore, God designed the Christian church to be a community of believers. And if we live communally, that means that all of our basic emotional, psychological, and relational needs can be met right here within this context. And therefore, you and I don't ever have to be alone. We can meet the needs of one another. And if we don't feel alone, then we won't feel the pressure just to try to find someone and then enter into what we might call non-advisable relationships. This brings me to my final point. Every single one of us, every single one of you is getting married someday. Do you realize that the Bible as a big narrative is one giant cosmic love story? It's true. In the beginning, God creates a man and a woman and he brings them together in this beautiful garden and he has them get married. And it's perfect. Again, it goes south pretty quick, though. 
They make some bad decisions. They bring sin into the world. And God recognizes that he doesn't want his children to live forever in this fallen state. And so in the most romantic gesture in all of history, God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into this world in human flesh and he lived every single day for you and me until he finally went to the cross that should have been our cross and he romantically died for you and me. And in doing so, he cleansed us of all of our sins and all of our guilt. And the Bible tells us that one day he's coming back. And we who have been cleansed of our sins are now robed in the most beautiful gown possible, which is the gown of Jesus Christ's righteousness. And he's going to pick us up and whisk us away and carry us across the threshold into eternal paradise. In other words... Again, let me say, marriage is a tremendous blessing that God gives to us, but even the best of marriages at their best moments, they are simply a foretaste of the joy and the glory and the intimacy and the satisfaction that you and I will one day have with Jesus Christ in heaven. If you have a gift of singleness, or if this is simply a season of life by which God has called you to be single, You're in good company because some of the people that God has used the most to advance his kingdom throughout history, including the Apostle Paul, were single themselves. God invented the church so that every single one of your relational needs could be met. You are not alone. You don't have to do this alone. God never designed for you to be alone. So embrace your church and we will embrace you. And finally, if you've ever experienced painful stretches of loneliness in this life, and I think all of us, whether married or unmarried, all of us probably have, what I want you to remember is Jesus not only saved you, he did that, but Jesus not only saved you, he also saved himself for you. Jesus willfully chose not to marry anyone in this lifetime, in his lifetime, because he knew that in the end you were worth it. You can get through these 6.9 seconds. You can do it. With the help of Jesus, with the help of your church, you can get through these 6.9 seconds if you realize that in the end, he is worth the wait too. No one has ever loved you like that. No one ever will love you like that. So get excited during this engagement period and ask for patience because soon... Marriage with him will be joy beyond anything that you can possibly imagine. Let's close with a prayer. Lord Jesus, tonight, whether we are single or we are married, all of us have experienced loneliness because there's no love in this world. No matter how wonderful our relationships might be, there's no love in this world that actually calms our restless hearts more than your love. We were built for you. We can only rest in you. So Lord Jesus, we're all waiting with eager anticipation to the day that you come back and you take us to be your bride forever. That'll be the life that really is life. That'll be the wedding banquet that truly is a celebration. Every single one of us who confess your name has that coming to us. Let us rejoice and celebrate that truth 
Let's not worry so much about these 6.9 seconds. Let's worry about eternity and think about the greatness that will be. We pray this in our risen Savior's name. Amen.